Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I had a special guest, Leslie Dewan. Uh, she works in finance for nuclear power, for uh, finding investment for nuclear power and raising investment and distributing investment. Um, and so this is a special episode. We didn't really go into stress or creativity that much, although I think it's still related, um, as I'll describe shortly. I am under the impression that if we want to if we are really serious about tackling the energy problem and the fact that there's global uh, climate change happening, then we need nuclear power as a base for our electricity. It's obvious, it's so obvious that we need nuclear power uh, and then to be supplemented by other things like solar and wind and all these other things. That is the only way that we're going to get off of fossil fuels and have a really radical change to our the way that we turn uh, the way that we create energy. And so I was really grateful to be able to uh, just really dive into Leslie's expansive knowledge over what nuclear power is and what the potential of it is and some of the more experiential stuff and some of the more um, concrete and practical things as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, and go ahead and subscribe. If you're really feeling gracious, please go ahead and leave a review as well. As always, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear from you about what you think of this show or about any of the other shows that I've done. Um, have a great day. Thank you. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Leslie Dewan, and uh, she is the founding principal of Nucleation Capital. So welcome to the show, uh, Leslie. Thank you so much, Stuart. Great to be talking with you. Can you give my listeners an understanding of what Nucleation Capital is? Absolutely. So we're a new investment fund that's focusing on investing in new types of advanced nuclear technology. So some of the new types of nuclear reactors that have better ways of addressing the safety and waste and proliferation and cost issues that are holding back the current fleet. So we think that now is really the right time to be accelerating these designs. Very interesting. And it, is this, you know, traditionally I feel like capital for nuclear power plants, uh, my totally uninformed opinion would, or assumption would be that it's from governments. Is that accurate or do private investors often invest in nuclear power as well? So traditionally, most of the funding for nuclear reactors have come from government. But over the past, say, five, six, or seven years, there's been more and more private investment in different types of nuclear technologies. So um, I think actually to put some numbers on it, there's been over the past seven years about $1.6 billion in private investment in just North American advanced reactor development efforts. And these are spanning a really wide range of technologies. So some new types of fission reactors, some new types of fusion reactors, and you know some interesting advanced materials that'll help accelerate all of them as well. Wow. All right. So, and what in the past, what, what, why did that change? That's a good question. So, sort of the, the prior heyday for advanced nuclear, or for nuclear development as a whole was really in the 1950s and 1960s. So, um, you know, if you look back at, at research papers, from the time, like, it's so striking to me to read them because the sense of, like, optimism and enthusiasm is really jumping out of the page. So back in the 1950s and 60s was when people were developing plans for nuclear-powered cars, nuclear-powered airplanes, mm. nuclear-powered trains and zeppelins and things like that. And, and we're coming up with a whole range of, uh, you know, interesting technologies that could power these, like liquid-fueled reactors, uh, reactors cooled by molten lead or molten sodium metal, things along those lines. Um, but the nuclear industry really hit a stagnation point following the Three Mile Island partial meltdown in 1979. And so from then onwards, and that was compounded by um, the 1986 uh, Chernobyl disaster as well, the nuclear industry went into this decade-long period of stagnation where there was very little new development. There were far fewer nuclear engineers entering the field and, um, and not much new was being developed. But starting around, I'd say about seven years ago now, there's sort of a, a resurgence of many new nuclear engineers entering the field, trying to 
adapt and modify different types of designs um, so that they can be used and so that they can be commercialized more rapidly. And then a lot of these people also are starting up smaller private companies to make their designs a reality as quickly as possible. And so that, I think, this rise in smaller scale, privately financed advanced nuclear companies is sort of like spearheading this rise in private investment in the sector. So interesting. Next question I want to ask is why do you think so many people started to become nuclear scientists again? I, I would I could venture a guess because I like for me nuclear is so important because it feels like it's the only not necessarily silver bullet but comes pretty close in terms of uh, preventing climate change or in some ways like mitigating climate change because it's a stable way to get power whereas solar only depends on certain time frames and wind depends on certain time frames whereas like nuclear power could be that bedrock but it seems like the only thing stopping us from having that is this what i see substantiated fear of nuclear power because of things like three mile island does the environment environmental cues have anything to do with people becoming nuclear engineers again I think that's a big piece of it. You know, so if you look at the age distribution of nuclear engineers, it's very, very bifurcated. You have a large number of nuclear engineers who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then sort of a trough where there's no one, and now the new generation of nuclear engineers who are in their 20s and 30s. And I think among that younger cohort, so many of us are motivated by the urgency of figuring out better ways to produce carbon-free electricity and moving the world away from fossil fuels. I think that's a major driver. And then what, so what are the technologies uh, that are currently coming out that you're excited about or that you're investing in, in terms of that will help us in that, in that regard? So some of the technologies that I'm most excited about um, are a few separate categories of advanced reactors. So one of them is called a molten salt reactor that uses liquid fuel rather than solid fuel. And um, one of the nice things about this type of reactor is that it operates at atmospheric pressure rather than the hundred times atmospheric pressure that some conventional plants operate at. And so this means that if something goes wrong in the system, if you have a break in the line, for example, um, the system stays put. You don't have this massive driving force that could potentially push radioactive material outside of the site boundary. And also, if there's any break in a line, any type of accident, the liquid fuel immediately freezes solid. Its freezing point is 490 degrees Celsius for the case of some of the different types of fuels. So if you have an accident, it fails in a solid form rather than in a liquid or gaseous form. So it gives you incredible safety benefits from that perspective. Um, and there are a number of companies that are sort of uh, that are commercializing different flavors of these molten salt reactors. Um, and taking, taking a variety of really interesting approaches there. And then there's another category of advanced reactor that uses liquid metals as coolant. So this could be liquid lead, for example, or liquid sodium metal. And these also operate at atmospheric pressure. So they have that same benefit of you know, not having a driving force that could push radioactive material out where you don't want it to be. So those are, I'd say, the two categories that I'm most excited about. And then, and then on top of that also, um, so just to go on a little bit more in my excitement, you know, there's a lot of other neat things that are going on uh, up and down the supply chain as well. So people who are working on advanced uh, silicon carbide composites, for example, that could let reactors operate safely at much higher temperatures. And if you have a reactor operating at much higher temperatures, you could use the heat that's produced to make hydrogen fuel, for example, or other types of synthetic fuel. And that would be incredibly groundbreaking because that would allow you to decarbonize many, many other parts of the fuel cycle. And then, so how much is a traditional, how much does it cost to build a traditional reactor versus how much does it cost to build one of these new reactors? Are they already ready or is there a lot more R&D that needs to go into any of those three? There is a lot more R&D that still needs to be done. Um, so one of the biggest issues with the conventional reactors is the very high cost to build them. Um, Within, within the US, within Western Europe, um, the vast majority of conventional nuclear reactors under construction have very, very substantial cost overruns and timeline overruns. You know, there's some units that, you know, have gone up in price to being, um, I'd say, $12 billion, $13 billion just for one power plant that's producing about a gigawatt electric. The goal for the advanced reactors is that they could be substantially cheaper 
than some of these conventional plants. But these uh, the advanced reactors are still many years away from construction. You know, so they're aiming to build prototype units in the mid-20s and then in the early 30s. A lot of them are aiming to have commercial units operating by then. And so right now it's there's a lot of promise that they will ultimately be lower cost, but there are very, very large error bars around those numbers right now. Mm. And is that kind of the thesis behind your fund is that this is going to be so cheap that the that it's going to uh, kind of be the main power source so that you can you can actually recoup the investment a lot of, like the same kind of power laws as maybe a software company could um, could get we think that that's that'll be a big piece of it so um, one of the nice things about a lot of these advanced reactors is that they can be manufactured modularly. So you can have one central facility that's um, you know, making the reactor cores, that's making the pump spouts and heat exchangers, and is you know, assembling them as, as much as possible before the different components are shipped out to their ultimate site. So that could drive substantial, substantial cost savings. What does the world look like when that, that is fueled primarily by nuclear power? Well, so what's interesting about that, like, I, I'm not really sure what the ultimate energy mix will look like going 20, 30, 40, 50 years out into the future. You know, I think that nuclear should be a substantial component of it, of, you know, producing the baseload electricity worldwide. But I think that no matter what, there's a substantial place for solar and wind and hydro and geothermal and other carbon resources. Like, I think with solar in particular, it can be really really cheap and if you couple solar with good storage then it would be i think it's just you know sensible to have a lot of solar in the areas where solar is low cost similarly with wind and other sources that's so interesting so you basically have if we have good storage cheap solar power and a baseline of nuclear that could be a pretty good way to get power from for the future yes i think that could make for a very very robust grid Mm. Um, you know, one area where I think nuclear reactors, you know, especially some of the more smaller, the, the smaller modular reactors that are currently be being developed could be useful would be alongside data centers. You know, mm. their data centers being built that will consume, you know, tens or even hundreds of megawatts of electricity. They need that power source to be rock solid, always on. Data centers are conveniently located in the middle of nowhere, so it shouldn't be too much of a problem to co-locate a small modular nuclear reactor mm. right next to them. So I think that could be a very, very interesting um, you know, way of deploying them going forward. Has anybody been pitching you on uh, Bitcoin mining or other types of cryptocurrency mining using modular <laughs> power? I, I haven't gotten a specific pitch on that yet. That's something that... Um, maybe, maybe I should. I should pitch you that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, is that, is that... Have you thought about that before? Has anybody thought about that before? Um, you know, I think that one of the Russian nuclear reactors uh, just recently is, you know, earmarking some of its electric power for Bitcoin mining. I... Um, I perhaps should do a bit more background research on this, but I think I saw a headline about that just a week or two ago. So there are definitely some people that are thinking along those lines. And so you mentioned a, a kilowatt. To give my listeners an understanding of what a kilowatt is, do you know how many, how many kilowatts a city like New York City or San Francisco needs for its daily usage? Um, you know, I need to double check these numbers to make sure I have them right. But I'd say um, a city like San Francisco at baseline would be consuming around a gigawatt of electricity, mm -hmm. you know, if you're looking at the broader San Francisco area. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. And, and we, I, if it, so do you know the percentage of what that is right now? You know, I, I didn't ask you these questions beforehand, but, and these are specific, but do you know how much of that is coal? How much of that is natural gas? How much of it is solar or, no, or anything like that for an average U.S. American citizen? Um, so nuclear provides about 20% of all of the electricity within the United States, specifically about 10% of electricity worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, and I need to look up what the... Uh, 
what the coal and oil numbers specifically are, but nuclear provides about half of the U.S.'s carbon-free electricity as well. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so right now in the U.S., it's about 20% nuclear and then another 20% of solar, wind, hydro, itty-bitty bit of geothermal. And then in the U.S., of course, there's a substantial amount of our electricity that's generated by natural gas because natural gas prices have been exceptionally low over the past decade. Hmm. And then a substantial chunk from coal as well. Interesting. And then, so, you know, society has this fear of nuclear power. It seems pretty embedded to the point, like it's pretty scared of, of, of nuclear power. Uh, but then you're not dealing with that much of regular society. You're dealing with people who want to invest capital and then want to have a return. And I imagine a lot of founders as well. Um, on the investment side, well, I mean, I guess you're, you're the one investing, but how much of that fear of nuclear power do you deal with in your working day? Or do people already know what, if they're talking to you, they probably already know about nuclear power and they might even be optimists about it. So I'd say it's, it's not necessarily fear of nuclear power, but it's lack of knowledge about nuclear power. And I think to some degree you can put the, the, blame for that on the nuclear industry itself because for so many decades and you know even more so since three mile island the nuclear industry has been closed off in many ways and and not communicating with people um you know something that's particularly striking to me so um i got on this youtube uh rabbit hole a few years ago and was looking at some uh nuclear videos from the 1950s. And these were just you know, some of the most optimistic, exciting things that I had ever seen. It was just this exceptionally enthusiastic scientist in a lab coat uh, who was, you know, standing on a floor surrounded by mouse traps, spring-loaded with ping pong balls. He was holding another ping pong ball in his hand and then gently like chucked it at the floor where it hit one of the other spring-loaded mouse traps, sent the balls flying, and that was his way of demonstrating what a chain reaction was, what a chain reaction was. And he was just, he just seemed like so pleased to be like sharing this new science with people, this technology that, you know, at the time it just been developed 10 years previously. Um, and then the next video that YouTube queued up was one from the late 1970s, where there was a nuclear industry executive who was talking about how you know, we're going to build this new power plant in the outskirts of New York City. It's going to be great. Don't ask questions. It's going to be fine. You will like it. He's literally smoking a cigarette that he's half-heartedly trying to keep out of the frame of the camera while just telling people, like, just trust us. It's going to be fine. Um, and, you know, something that... I've always felt is necessary. Um, and you know, this is something that I did at my prior company as well. So prior to nucleation capital, I was running one of the early advanced reactor design startups um, for about seven years. And one of the things that we always tried to do then, and that I'm always trying to do now is just have very open conversations with people about how, how nuclear technology works, how advanced nuclear reactors work, how they differ from the previous generation of designs, and what that means for people, what the benefits are, what the potential drawbacks are, and, and what things could look like going forward. Mm. And I think really that you know, the nuclear industry has been closed off for so many decades that it, you know, it could take 10 years, it could take a long amount of time before we rebuild these bridges with people and, and reopen lines of communication. Hmm. So I got a lot of questions from there. Let me see, I'm gonna make some notes to see if I can get them all. Um, so first question is, I'd love to hear what it's like to build a startup in something like nuclear power, where as you said, this is like 10 to 15 years from even like getting to that first stage where we start making money. Um, and, you know, most venture capital firms are looking for a 10 year horizon where they're going to get their money back within 10 years. Um, what's it like to try to build a startup or to build a startup that is so uh, early, so uh, just like new and young and like nobody, there's no press, probably that much press around you or anything like that. I imagine it's pretty similar for a lot of different other type of power sources or maybe what it was for synthetic biology about 10 years ago or something like that. What does it feel like to be building something like that? It, it was in many ways a really wonderful experience. So we, um, 
we had a fantastic team and, and there's seriously just, you know, nothing else that can compare to like working with a really, really good team on hard technology that could ultimately be really helpful for people. Um, but there was, you know, there were a lot of hard things that cropped up along the way too. And, you know, one of the initial ones was how do we raise funding for something like this? Um, we, we'd have initial conversations, you know, with investors, like say, you know, this was about a decade ago when we were first raising funding for it. Um, we talked to investors who at first really, really liked our pitch. And they said, oh, that's great. We'd love to invest. When will you have one built? Like, will it be up and running in like 12 months, 18 months, something like that? And, and we'd have to say, no, like it's, it's going to take at least a decade for this to, to come to fruition. It's going to take a long time for us to have a physical product. And because, um, you know, these were investors who were familiar with making software investments and they weren't really sure how to think outside of that mold and they didn't really have any incentive to think outside of that mold. Um, what made it really click for us was when we started talking to companies who had made aerospace investments in the past mm. because they understood the timelines and the dollar amounts that would ultimately be involved. And actually the first main investor in um, in my previous company was Founders Fund that had made the first big investment in Elon Musk's SpaceX. And so when we talked to them, they said, okay, like that's, you know, we, we understand the timeline. We understand the amount of money this will take and, you know, the numbers that you're telling us, well, that's about how long it took to get the Falcon 9 off the ground. So we get it and we're in. That, that is really interesting because it, 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 and this is the other question that I had, it's this bits versus atoms. Uh, and I think Nicholas Negroponte was the first person to talk about that. But then Peter Thiel talks a lot about it as well at Founders Fund, which is like investing in atoms versus bits. Because, you know, up until the, like in the 1950s, like you were saying, there was so much excitement about hard technology. Uh, and then 1970s, 1980s come along and all of a sudden the computer just takes over and takes over the mind share of anybody that's involved whatsoever with technology. And it does seem like there's little whispers of, of hard technology coming back into it, particularly now that we have this kind of like seeming deadline over our heads. That's like, we've got to figure this power situation out or else we're going to, we're going to have huge problems. Uh, and so it seems like that's, it, and it also coincides because I, I believe that one of the main reasons we had that interest in hard science was actually because of a competition on a global stage. Um, and, yes. and then 1990s, we started to lose that competition uh, and now it's starting to come back in a, in a very new way. It's not the same way as the Soviet Union, but, and this actually gets to another question. So there, there's the bits versus atoms and like what it's like to work in that, in that um, atoms, in innovation in atoms versus innovation in bits, but then also a question about China. And I'd love to understand more about uh, the Chinese uh, nuclear power situation, if you know anything about it. So either one of those I'd like to talk about. Absolutely. Um, I'll start first on, um, on China. So they're pouring a tremendous amount of money into advanced reactor development, mm. much, much more so than the United States. Um, to put some numbers on it, so looking back maybe two or three years ago, uh, the U.S. had earmarked at the time, I think, just about $12 million overall for mm. uh, national lab partnerships with advanced reactor companies. You know, there was you know, some additional money that was going into advanced reactor work within the national labs, but it was just $12 million um, for those industry partnerships. China at the same time was putting $500 million into just one type of advanced reactor, just one type of molten salt reactor specifically. Um, and they have hundreds and hundreds of engineers working on it. Um, I believe the average age of um, the Chinese engineers who are working on advanced reactors is just about 28 or 29 years old. So I think in some ways they're like starting up a new Apollo program within China for um, looking specifically at advanced reactor research. Um, and on the one hand, you know, as, as a scientist and engineer and as someone who cares about climate change, I think that this is wonderful news from one perspective. Like they are making these technologies. China is a market that really needs it. They're growing so quickly. They, there's an immense benefit globally if they're switching to carbon-free technologies. Um, but part of me also as an American thinks, oh gosh, I want the U.S. to put much more money into these advanced reactor designs. You know, I want to make sure that the U.S., doesn't lose its technological leadership in the advanced reactor realm. Whoa, that's, um, I feel conflicted just, just as you said that. Um, 
and it has it has to lie. I mean, because it's it's so interesting because the U.S. you know China has basically been copying whatever innovation comes out out of the U.S. for a very long time now. Uh, and the question is is whether they can have homegrown innovation. Uh, and they kind of shown that that in TikTok they have um, uh, they have have been able to create create something new that didn't exist somewhere else. Although it was pretty similar to what came before it, but um, but now it seems like they are way way ahead in terms of advanced reactors. Uh, and so I wonder about the transmission of technology from China to other places, or whether they'll keep it pretty guarded. What is the what is the sharing of resources between people who are working in these problems in different countries? Like, are these people who are discovering these things in China? Are does it is it seeping back into the knowledge of the United States? So, to your earlier point, I think that right now China is um, definitely outstripping the U.S. in terms of funding advanced reactor design efforts. I'm I'm not sure yet whether they've surpassed us in developing new technology. It's mm -hmm. my assessment that you know some of the most innovative pieces still are coming outside of the US. Mm -hmm. And I mean also, you know, I think this competition between the US and China um, on advanced nuclear power reactors is also driving some of the increased levels of funding in advanced mm -hmm. nuclear over the past several years. Um, and you know, there've been uh, a number of pieces of legislation, like very, very bipartisan legislation um, that's been passed just over the past year or so that's increasing funding to advance nuclear, making it more straightforward to work with the national labs uh, and ultimately to build prototype facilities at national lab sites, um, uh, to some degree also broadening the mandate of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to make it more straightforward for them to regulate these advanced reactors. So there's been a, a lot of positive things actually coming out of this competition. Very cool. And I'd say also, um, to, to properly answer your question, um, I think that within academia, there is very good collaboration between U.S. and Chinese research universities. Um, on advanced nuclear, it becomes substantially trickier for private companies to work with China because then you start running afoul of um, export control regulations um, and ITAR and, and other regulatory pieces that are in place. But within academia, it you know from from my view, which is you know now I'm an outsider to academia. From my view, it all seems very collegial. Uh huh. That's so interesting. This gets back to something I've discovered with other talking with other people and particularly other investors is that there's this time frame for a technology that's you're in the you're in academia or you're playing around you're kind of just doing it just to discover new things with no monetary benefit and then eventually something is discovered that makes it somewhat able to be um, find profit from and then there's more R and D that needs to happen. Is that an accurate representation of what happens or do you have a do you have a better more nuanced sense of what what happens from technology being born to technology being um, commercialized. I think that's very accurate. And it's actually within advanced nuclear right now, we're, we're still at the stage where the success of any advanced reactor technology, you know, whether it's within the US, uh, whether it's overseas, any success is a validation for the sector as a whole. And I think there certainly will be uh, you know, a tipping point will be a percolation point at which point things will become much more cutthroat. But right now, I think everyone has, this might be a bit too kumbaya, but I think <laughs> everyone recognizes that it's it's beneficial to, you know, share information to some measured degree and just get these plants working um, make sure they're manufacturable, making sure we have a robust supply chain. Uh, interesting. So everyone's interests now are roughly aligned with one another, but I'm not sure at what point the uh, the harsher competition will come into play. That's so interesting. So I'd love to go into the philosophical things about what you're talking about or what what what, what you're doing because I'm I'm really curious as to what how young you were when you were like okay I'm going to be a nuclear engineer and what about nuclear engineering made you so excited. Hmm. Okay, so I was very lucky because I had amazing physics teachers in high school. Um, so both women both went to MIT, and one was actually one of the first women to get a nuclear physics PhD. 
from MIT um, back in the late 1950s. And so I, you know, I took their classes in high school and I thought, okay, I, I want to be exactly like you. You are the coolest people that I have ever met. Um, and so I ended up uh, going to MIT. I started out majoring in physics. And what I kind of realized as I progressed through my coursework there as an undergrad, that what I really, really liked was making things, making things that could be helpful to people, making things that people could use. Um, so I ended up switching my major to double in nuclear engineering and mechanical engineering. Mm. And then, uh, you know, worked in robotics for a little while, came back to go to grad school to focus on nuclear power. And so for me, you know, I, I became a nuclear engineer partly because I, I find it academically really interesting. I just, nuclear physics is fascinating. And also, I think it has the potential to do some real good for the world, to move the world away from fossil fuels and move, move us to a better type of energy production. Hmm. And, and at its most basic level, you know, explaining it as if I were a 12 year old, because that's about my knowledge of the last time I studied nuclear power. What is happening in any of these advanced reactors or even just a traditional reactor? Why, why do we get so much power from a nuclear reaction? Okay, so in any type of nuclear reactor, um, within your reactor core, you have a large stable number of nuclear fission reactions. So you have a neutron that hits a uranium nucleus, splits it in two, and when the nucleus is split in two, it releases heat and additional neutrons. And those neutrons go on in turn to split other uranium nuclei, which in turn produces heat and more neutrons, etc. And this is all held in a stable configuration within a nuclear reactor core. And so the power comes out of it because you're able to capture the power that's in this heat that's produced. Mm. So basically the heat that's produced in the core of a nuclear reactor is used to boil water into steam in most cases. And that steam drives a turbine that turns a generator that produces electricity. So there's actually this really, really beautiful um, 1950s Walt Disney book and the accompanying animated feature called Our Friend the Atom. And it, you know, it hits really hard on this idea that a nuclear reactor is just a fancy way of boiling water. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So yeah, it's like not so different from a steam engine, except it's powered by this neutron uh, releasing heat as opposed to a coal being burned. Exactly. Yeah. The, um, the power production side, the steam loop is in many cases, um, well, is functionally identical. Mm. It's just your ultimate heat source is from the heat coming out of the uranium fission. That's really interesting. I had one of those physics professors who inspired me a lot uh, when I was younger and he, I still remember it. And this must've been when I was like 13 years old, he said that eventually that it's technically feasible that fusion power will, could eventually work. And that if fusion power would actually work, that we could um, put all our garbage in the reactor and then turn that into energy. Is that, is that accurate? I possibly, I mean, <laughs> you know, fusion, fusion has more nuances than fission that I, you know, so I might not be getting all the subtleties, but yeah, that's, that's theoretically possible. Okay. But there's no, you haven't seen any technology that's like actually out there that is, is do you know anything about fusion? Is, is, is there anything interesting happening in the fusion power? Oh, there is so much interesting work that's going on in the fusion reactor side. So there, um, I'd say about a dozen really serious fusion startups, uh, primarily within the United States, some in Canada as well, that are working on um, much more compact, lower cost, you know, ultimately manufacturable uh, fusion reactor designs. And they also have pulled in a substantial amount of private funding as well. So they're investing mm -hmm. to pretty least the states there. Mm, I should go interview some of them. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I can, um, I can give you some suggestions for people to talk to. There's an exceptionally interesting effort uh, coming out of MIT called Commonwealth Fusion that oh. has a very, very innovative approach. Okay, I'll definitely reach out. And also, to a lot of the founding principals there were uh, grad school classmates of, uh, of me and my co-founder who started Transatomic. Um, and then there's mm -hmm. another, like we had a pretty small grad school cohort. There were maybe just about 15 or 20 of us, but yeah. we ended up starting a pretty large number of advanced nuclear companies among our cohort. 
this is so interesting because it gets into this technology is such a scene. And, you know, like in the 1980, my, my dad was an investor and I've been doing this weekly series with him where I'm interviewing him about what it was like to be in the personal computing industry in the 1980s and 1990s. Oh, interesting. Uh, it, was, it was a scene. It was like this, like the scene, everybody knew each other, but that's impossible today. Like it's impossible to be in San Francisco and to know everybody. There's so many people doing software, but then in nuclear power and nuclear fusion, it looks like there's a scene in synthetic biology. There's a scene all these different little kind of things. Um, there's, there's these scenes. And then I guess within software, there, there, there are scenes as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I actually just got back yesterday from a nuclear engineering uh, advanced reactor conference that was being held down in Houston. Um, it was hosted by ARPA-E, which is a division within the Department of Energy that's focusing on rapidly commercializing innovative technologies. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it was a, a smaller group down there, maybe just about uh, 70, 80 people all focusing on commercializing advanced reactor designs. And it's you know, very much a, yeah, a scene, perhaps, <laughs> a very collegial group. Mm -hmm. So where is the capital? Where are your, I mean, I don't know if you can talk about this, but where are your uh, LPs coming from? Where, where is all this capital going into, uh, going into your fund and then into the companies? So I'd say, um, I have to be a little bit vague when talking about it, but I'd say a lot of the interest in investing in advanced nuclear comes from sovereign funds um, and to some degree from high net worth individuals and family offices. So I'd characterize it broadly as groups that are able to make investments on multi-decade timelines. Mm, interesting. Like yeah. groups that have that, that longer time horizon approach. And it's so interesting because because traditionally it would have been governments who are doing it, but I imagine it still is a lot of government money going into it. Oh yeah, and on the on the sovereign fund side, it's um, uh, yeah, it is it is government money coming into it. Um, in particular, uh, so they're they're not an investor in us, but uh, the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund, Tamasek, uh, yeah. is doing substantial work investing in nuclear, uh, focusing primarily on nuclear fusion, actually. They have two big investments in that realm and have you know, pulled together an internal team within this, this massive sovereign fund specifically for evaluating nuclear investments. That is interesting. And it makes so much sense for Singapore. <laughs> um, yes. Because, yeah, it's just it's, uh, that, them using that power is so key. Yeah, and they're so forward-looking with us. So I was, I was very glad to hear that they were doing that. Mm. And so going back into this kind of this, this few, this vision, why you got so interested in the first place. Do you, when you, when you think about this stuff, do you actually visualize it in your head when you, when these neutrons coming together and, and exploding, uh, do you have like a good visualization of that happening? <laughs> I, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, I have, I have a visualization of that happening. I'm not sure whether. I mean, I, I kind of picture, you know, so the nucleus of the atom. It's um, protons and neutrons that are held together by the nuclear strong force, um, huh. and I kind of view it as a mass of billiard balls that are stuck together, and then another neutron, another billiard ball comes in and splits them in two. So, um, so these atoms are held to, or the, you said the neutron or is, is held together by a nuclear strong force? Yeah, the, the protons and neutrons that make up the nucleus of the atom are held together by the nuclear strong force. And so, you know, that was something that people didn't figure out until, um, I think the mid 1930s, cause they were trying to figure out, you know, these, there were a few decades from the 1890s through the 1930s where scientists were, um, you know, basically trying to figure out, like, what are all these weird things happening in our labs? Like, mm -hmm. why, when I turn on this, um, this vacuum tube, why do other things on my lab bench start to glow? Like, why, when I put these uranium crystals under a, on a wrapped photographic plate, why do I get images of the uranium crystals on these plate? So it was just like decades of these researchers digging deeper and deeper and trying to find solutions to these problems. You know, things like, okay, well, we know that the nucleus of an atom has neutral particles, neutrons, and positively charged particles, protons, but how on earth does it stick together? Because we know from, you know, classical electrodynamics that positive charges need to repel each other. Like, what is this other force that's coming into play? And, you know, and it took decades of research to realize, okay, there's 
another fundamental force in the universe beyond gravity, um, beyond electrostatics, the nuclear strong force that's holding these different ions together. Is that the same force that holds the star together, or what? what or is that gravity? That's gravity that holds the star together. I mean, gravity is a is a big component of it. With stars, it's with stars, it's a little bit more complicated on that realm. But it um, the strong force does does come into play there. Interesting. And then this nuclear strong force is also at play with all of the atoms in my body, correct? Within the the nuclei of all okay, of the atoms. Uh, the nuclei, uh-huh. Interesting. It's so interesting. I haven't, I haven't tried to wrap my head around physics for a long time. Um, I feel like I need to take classes in physics and mathematics uh, so that I can do more interesting interviews with, with people like you. No, it's hard to describe it without having like diagrams. I keep, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to, hard to describe it just, just with words here. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was an exceptionally interesting time, you know, in physics, like culminating in, in the late 1930s. Cause you know, the, once they realized that the strong force was in place and the neutrons were in place, they realized, okay, this is something that can be weaponized, really. Right. And so it's, it's sort of this progression of like nuclear physicists, like trying in kind of an innocent way to, you know, solve a problem and like get to the bottom of these really interesting scientific phenomena. And then it all came together right in the, in the lead into World War II. And they realized, oh gosh, this is, this also could be used to make a nuclear bomb. Mm. And this seems and to be, of, yeah, go for it. Oh, and like, I've been reading more and more accounts um, at the time, like throughout, you know, from the, the late 1930s through the 1940s, accounts from the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. And so many of them are just like stunned by what they unleashed upon the world. I think there was one quote where they said, you know, we were, we were so innocent. We were, we were like children, you know, playing in a sandbox and we had no idea what would come out of it. And then I think for a lot of them, it, for a lot of these scientists, it motivated them to find peacetime uses for nuclear. They wanted to say, okay, this, the nuclear bomb is, is this terrible thing that we've made, but you know, now we have this, this burning desire, this motivation to use it to make power, to use it to, to better mankind. And for them, I think it was this need for atonement almost that was driving them in those early days. Hmm. Yeah, this is, it's, it seems like the key question that humanity is facing since 1945 is just like, well, there's two things. There's the horrible atrocities that happened at a socioeconomic level and then there's this one huge or two huge events of nuclear uh, bomb being dropped. And they just like, you know, it's like in all of our childhoods, when we learned history that those were like the big things in their heads is like Hitler killed all of these people. And then this bomb killed all of these people as well. And, and, and it's like, and I think I interviewed Mike Solano from Founders Fund. Uh, oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was really interesting. And we talked about like, why, why is nuclear power uh, so feared and why, why is there the spirit of, about this? Um, and it, and it, and it seems related to those, to those events, particularly and as you said, the three mile Island event as well. So it's, and, it, and it's like, we haven't come to an answer as, as, uh, as a as species, like what, how do we deal with this? And, and now as we kind of go more into a multipolar world where there's a lot of different power centers uh, we're now kind of confronted with this question that we've been kind of spared from for the last 20 to 30 years, which is like, what, what does the world look like? We've never had a, we've never had a multipolar world in the age of nuclear weapons, um, which is nerve wracking for me. Um, but you know, reality oftentimes doesn't play out the way that we expect it in our heads. So I don't think there's no hope, but I'm, I'm pretty nervous about it. Yeah, it's so interesting when, um, yeah, thinking back again to some of the scientists' accounts from, from August of 1945, there's this sense that, you know, all of a sudden technology had outstripped what their mm-hmm. ethics perhaps were able to handle. And so everyone was saying, okay, how do we, how do we square this? Like, how, how do we move forward from this? Like, this could be this could be terrible, or if we are thoughtful about it, if we work hard, we can do something 
really good with it. Mm. And it's, and it was such a profound shift that it, you know, quite understandably, you know, took a really, really long time to figure out what that new paradigm really meant. And we're still figuring it out. Yeah. And this goes into philosophy because, you know, Nietzsche famously said that uh, God is dead. And I don't know whether he said it or not, but we might've killed him. Uh, But, and then, you know, moving forward, like what, what replaced God science and now what does science and technology allow us to do? It essentially allows us to be, become gods. And, um, and that, that is essentially the, the, uh, the dilemma that, that I think you just expressed is just this, like, this can be used to destroy everything or it can be used to power everything. Um, and it's such an interesting dilemma and it's kind of that, you know, hell versus heaven type of thing as well, which is uh, maybe I'm putting my own framing, framing on this, but I think it's an interesting one where it's like, uh, we, we have so much power in our hands as human beings, even as individual human beings, like we've just way, way more ability to do way more things because of the tools that are in our hands. Um, and it's just like in this ethical consideration, it's so interesting. I was actually talking to an ethicist or interviewing an ethicist a week ago, um, and we touched on the subject because his point was that, well, people have been thinking about ethics for a very long time. And there's a huge, huge thing about ethics and technology and like, this is actually already pretty standardized and you can go, you can go read a lot of these arguments, but maybe in practice, it's not necessarily true. And cause you know, not everybody has access to all the, all the philosophical thinkers. Um, yeah. What do you think about yeah, that? Or I think for many industries, like it's hard to see the parallels between, you know, ethics in bioengineering versus, mm-hmm. you know, ethics in aerospace versus ethics in nuclear and things like that. Like there's just, no one has figured out that type of like consolidated best practices perhaps mm-hmm. you know but i'd say you know overall like to to focus back on advanced nuclear specifically it's i'm feeling exceptionally optimistic like both about the new technology that's being developed and the individual people and companies who are working on it and the potential that it has to solve the existential problem that we're facing with climate change mm-hmm. you know i think that the groups that are working on these reactor designs are just laser focused on, you know, we're going to address the the safety and waste and proliferation and cost problems that were holding back the prior sets, the prior mm-hmm. generations of nuclear reactors. Um, you know, we're going to make sure that we're that we're behaving ethically, that we're you know doing this for the good of the world, and it's something that I find incredibly heartening. Mm. And that gets to uh, an interesting point about humanity because humanity has always had problems and that's our main uh, uh, tool is that we solve problems and that's, that's, that's what we, we've, we know how to do and what we've been really good at and what's allowed us to go all over the world. And now we have, we have nuclear power and that created a whole bunch of new problems that we didn't realize when we first started it now all these problems are being sectioned off and being solved and most problems have a solution. Would you agree with that statement? Most problems have a solution. Oh yes, very much so. Yeah. And so I guess this comes to a question. What if most problems have a solution, what is the best way to find a solution to a problem? I guess that depends. Um, So, okay, let's go. What are the, you already mentioned them. The biggest problems in nuclear power today are, uh, the waste pl- proliferation. What are the other ones? And safety and overall cost overall. of the nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. And you know, cost is is a really key one, I think, because especially if you're looking at building nuclear power plants in rapidly developing markets like mm-hmm. you know, China or India or Brazil, you're going to make you you have to make sure that these reactors can undercut fossil fuel sources on a cost basis. Like you need to make sure that your economic arguments are in line with what's good mm. for the environment or otherwise no one's going to adopt them. Mm. And so is the molten salt reactor, is that the one that's going to offer the most um, cost benefits? I'd say, I'd say it's very likely that it could do that. And then also, um, liquid metal cooled reactors, I think also have um, a very strong case for being able to undercut Mm. fossil fuels on cost. And again, you know, there's some caveats here because 
again, with these reactors, um, you know, with molten salt reactors in particular, there haven't been prototype facilities built, you know, since the very early ones that were built back in the 1950s and the 1960s. So, you know, these new advanced reactor companies need to actually start pouring the concrete, building a demonstration unit, building prototype units, and getting finer grain estimates on what the cost will look like going forward. Why were there so many prototypes and then they and then they stopped building them? So some of the, the early prototypes, there are actually two uh, molten salt reactor prototypes that were built, one in the 50s, one in the 60s, and were and were operated. And you know, that was like part of in that early phase of the nuclear industry when they were trying all sorts of, of crazy out there designs. There was just an absolute flourishing of, of different tests of different types of units. And in many cases, like they had really rapid turnaround times. You know, you'd come up with a design for a reactor like scribbled up on the back of a napkin, and then within 18 months, you'd have an operating nuclear power reactor. And that's that's not at all possible now. And that's probably for the best, to be honest, that we have a really strong nuclear regulatory system yeah. in place. But you know, back in the 1950s and 1960s, it was it was possible to do that work quite quickly, and and people did. Interesting. And so uh, for the last five minutes, five minutes, um, what is a question that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Ooh, um, I'm not quite sure, actually. <laughs> Next question. <Sorry. laughs> nope, no problem. Uh, What is the importance of play? We've already kind of talked about it, but what is the importance of play when it comes to developing that those nuclear forces in uh, or, um, Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and how can people find out more and more about you and more about nucleation capital? So we have some more information at nucleationcapital.com and um, at some point in the very near future, I'm going to be putting up my own website at lesliedewan.com, which should have more info. Very cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Stuart. Great talking with you. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the other major podcasting platforms and go ahead and subscribe and maybe even give, give a review. I'm on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III. I'd love to hear what you think of this show or any of the other shows. Uh, my DMs are open. Would love to hear from you. You can just send me a message there um, and I will do my best to answer and reply. And as always, uh, I will be publishing episodes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday before your commute. And you can go ahead and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of those podcasting platforms. And I'll be releasing episodes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Have a great day. Thank you.